Welcome back, folks. I hope uh, you got something good to eat. Thank you to Marina and Del Cielo for this beautiful, abundant meal. I am so excited for this conversation. Um, we can say you need no introduction um, because I, I imagine that everybody in this room knows you and your work very, very well, but let me briefly just share with you a word about Dahlia Lithwick, who is a regular contributor at MSNBC and senior editor at Slate, and has been writing their Supreme Court dispatches and jurisprudence columns for many, many years, more than 20 years. She has written for all of the most respected journals and papers in the country, including the New York Times and Harper's and the New Yorker and the Washington Post and the New Republic and more. She hosts Amicus, which is Slate's podcast about the law and the Supreme Court. I love that we have Amicus uh, fans here in the room. <laughs> she has received a host of awards and prizes and is widely recognized as one of the nation's exceptional legal jurists. She's a teacher, an author, a sought-after speaker around the country, and maybe, I believe most importantly, in an era not only of polarization, but of obfuscation and truth manipulation, she is a truth teller. Dahlia Lithwick is a truth teller. Her writing is not only brilliant and thoroughly researched, her voice is honest and it is morally clear. And as she speaks, you can tell that she's smiling. <laughs> and if you listen to the audiobook, which I strongly recommend, you feel like you're sitting with a friend who is just loving sharing these stories because she has researched hard and these are hard stories to share, but they're shared with love because as hard as this journey has been, Dahlia Lithwick is nowhere near giving up. This makes you a profound inspiration for a whole generation of people who are struggling to find our center in an upside down world. We are so honored to have you with us this evening. Welcome and thank you for being with us. So we're gonna be in conversation um, tonight, but I wanted to, uh, to start by just giving us all a chance to hear from Dahlia um, a kind of more extended opening. Um, so I'm going to ask you, tell us about Lady Justice and what inspired you to write this book. So first of all, I, that was ridiculous. That was the, I mean, not since my bat mitzvah have I been <laughs> lavished with praise like that, and that was my mom. Um, <laughs> and I really want to thank um, uh, the Icar family, all of you, um, especially uh, folks who were going to bring me here, and then I got COVID, and then I had to cancel and reschedule. So um, to, to the whole team here, uh, and, and um, to Melissa and Adam who are putting me up, and to uh, my family in the back row and my Charlottesville friends here and so many um, people I only really knew from Facebook. I really weirdly feel like I am home. Yes, yes. And um, I just wanted to start, before I talk about the book, with just a little moment of Torah, if I may. And I realize I do that unwisely sitting next to, um, I think, one of the great rabbis of our time. Um <laughs> But I want to I want to um, just frame what I'm going to say about the book by maybe a little bit answering uh, the question that I got a lot uh, around this book, which is why did you write a book about women? Like there are a lot of really good, important men doing good, important work, and why did you write about women? And you know, somewhat of my response is because for millennia we've written books about men, and maybe it's you know, women's turn, but more importantly, and this is just a little bit of um, teaching that I want to give, um, I want to start, believe it or not, with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, and this book is not about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and it's quite actually determinedly not about her, but I want to start with something that I learned from her uh, every time I interviewed her, and I was very lucky, my friends, because I got the last in-person interview with her at the court right before it closed for COVID. Um, and one of the things that she always said 
is that I think people misunderstood what she was doing all those years when she was at the Women's Rights Project at the ACLU, and she would bring cases, you all know this if you watch the movies, she would bring cases on behalf of men who faced gender discrimination, right? She'd find the guy whose wife was in the Air Force and therefore he didn't get benefits because presumptively it's for wives, or the guy who wanted to stay home and take care of his ailing mother, but he was a guy so he couldn't get benefits. And this was always characterized, and I learned it this way in law school, as kind of a party trick, right? Mm. That she was really smart and clever and she got these sympathetic male plaintiffs mm. because the all-male panels that she were, was arguing in front of would look up and say, oh, I can see myself in that. I can't imagine empathizing with a woman, but this poor guy just wants custody of his child and the laws don't let him, that's not fair. And so this was always construed as this sort of clever little thing she did. And it isn't until you talked to her where she would tell you that in fact she genuinely believed the world would be a better place if men were allowed to stay home and take care of their ailing mothers and get benefits, the world would be a better place if men like her beloved husband could mm. cook and raise their children. Mm. And so this wasn't a party trick. This was her view of what it would be like not just to lift up women, but mm. to lift up men mm. and have both be fully realized, ethical, moral, fulfilled human beings in the world. And I just want to push back on the notion that this is a zero-sum thing. Mm -hmm. She was holding men down while pulling men, women up, and she did it with a trick. It was fundamentally the opposite mm. of that. It was a view of lifting up women would lift up men, and we could all live fuller, more beautiful, richer lives. Mm. And I'm just saying this because this spirit of zero-summary that we have gotten into, mm -hmm. where everyone else's victories are our losses. Mm -hmm. The entire Supreme Court term, this term, is predicated on the idea that if other people get stuff, you're losing, mm -hmm. right? If affirmative action is allowed to happen, then my kids can't go to school. If uh, the Native American tribes get first uh, dibs on, on children in the tribe, then I can't adopt those children. If African Americans are allowed to vote in Alabama, then I can't vote in Alabama. Mm. And what I wanna urge upon you is as we talk about this book tonight, please, please see it in this sort of Ginsbergian spirit mm. that I think it is in the best interest of all of us to lift up all of us. Mm. And this myth of scarcity that I think is plaguing this country right now, and certainly it is coloring the entire legal universe in which I move, is absolutely destroying mm. our ability to see in other people that if we rise, they rise. Mm. So that's just my tiny little bit of, I genuinely believe that Justice Ginsburg wants that piece of Torah to be part of yes. her tikkun olam. Okay. So I'm gonna talk for a very, very, very brief minute about the book, and then we're gonna have a conversation. And um, you know, nominally the topic of Lady Justice is uh, women in the law. And the question is, you know, why write a little pink book about the law? And more broadly, I think the topic is women and power and the justice system. And what do you do when the justice system is both the machinery of oppression and violence towards mm -hmm. women, towards minorities, towards uh, uh, LGBTQ Americans, towards migrants, and it is the engine of their salvation, their dignity, their equality. And the law is both, right? And here is where I must quote um, Homer Simpson, the great <laughs> legal thinker, who once said, of beer, that it is both the cause of and solution to all our problems. <laughs> Parenthetically, I once tried to get Justice Anthony Kennedy to use that in an opinion. <laughs> he did not. Um, but I think the book is really lies on this theme of what do you do when you have invested so much hope and pain and suffering over you know, decades and centuries to make sure that the law makes us free and equal. And then, as I think some of you know, I had to rewrite huge swaths of this book 
in the four days after Dobbs came down, when it became manifestly true that this book couldn't be a love song to law mm -hmm. and democracy mm -hmm. and justice because it had turned on a dime. And right this, at this moment, there are women in prison for miscarriages mm -hmm. in Oklahoma and Texas. And that's Dobbs. That's the machinery of the law being weaponized against us instead of lifting us up. And that tension runs mm -hmm. through the book. The only other thing I want to say, just by way of introduction, is there's a slight Where's Waldo quality to this book, uh, because I just happened to find myself in the midst of many, many strange moments over the Trump era. Uh, so, you know, you'll find this book sort of weaves in and out of moments where I happen to be in the chamber during Christine Blasey Ford's testimony and Brett Kavanaugh's testimony. I happen to live in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017 when Nazis and white supremacists marched through the town chanting blood and soil. So a lot of the things that I reported on in this book I was reporting on in real time as a journalist but living them, mm -hmm. and living them in deep pain and deep visceral pain about where mm -hmm. we were. And so this book also, in some sense, um, is a story of the arc of what I saw in a very compressed amount of time. And the book begins with Whole Women's Health, this extraordinary moment in 2016 where we have three women justices on the U.S. Supreme Court just shouting down poor Texas's solicitor generals just trying to get a word in and they're like, nah, stop talking, this is wrong. At some point, Justice Ginsburg literally put her hand up and told the Chief Justice, you're gonna give her a couple more minutes, yeah? And he did. And this moment of sort of women triumphing at the court and mm. you know, in the plaza in front of the court and the victory in whole women's health in 2016. And again, how that turns so quickly mm. to give us Dobbs in five short years. Mm -hmm. And you know, maybe the only other thing I'll say is that um, when I started writing this book, the, the median justice on the Supreme Court was Anthony Kennedy, mm -hmm. the man who, I shall say again, refused to use Homer Simpson in any opinion he ever wrote. <laughs> um, the median justice on the US Supreme Court today is Brett Kavanaugh. Chief Justice John Roberts is on the left mm -hmm. of him. Chief Justice John Roberts is immaterial for the purposes of the 5-4 majority that is now determining the future of you know, all the cases I just flicked at, the Indian Child Welfare Act, affirmative action, the independent state legislature theory. There's nothing that isn't coming up this term, and Brett Kavanaugh is the median justice. So I think maybe the, last, the very last thing I'll say by way of introduction is that this book is in some sense a meditation on being an insider outsider. Hmm. What it is to, as a woman, to have to code switch back and forth your whole life, living, and as I did, I went to great schools and great law schools and I succeeded by any metric, but living with that knowledge that is in your bones, hmm. that it could all turn on you because you remember, because you asked your grandmother, if she could have a credit card in her own name and she couldn't. And because you asked your grandmother, could you go to work pregnant and she couldn't. So I wanna suggest that that split screen life that had women pivot in one second after Donald Trump was elected and all the women in this book in different contexts truly thought they would be doing something very different when Hillary Clinton was elected, and some of them are very clear, I would, was going to be at the Justice Department. I was going to be making sure that you know everybody got birth control. They really thought we were moving forward. And every one of them tells the story of looking around and realizing somewhere in their bones mm. that they remember this story. Mm. And the story begins and ends with crowds chanting, lock her up mm -hmm. at Hillary Clinton which you and I probably thought was just rhetoric, mm -hmm. right? And then suddenly they were ch chanting, lock her up at Nancy Pelosi and at Christine Blasey Ford and at AOC. And now they are locking her up around the country mm. for miscarriages. So I just want to submit, and I could be wrong, that one of the reasons I felt the need to write this little pink book 
is to lift up women who are ordinary. Every woman in this book, the week of publication, sent me a note to say, this is a great book. These women are all heroes. I don't know why I'm in it, Mm. including Sally Yates. Every one of these women thinks they are ordinary. And so I end by saying, I think that we grieve Justice Ginsburg. We're looking for the next Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And yet these Ruth baby Ginsburgs in my book Mm -hmm. are all around. They are extraordinary. They are in this room. They can change the world. But we really, really have to lift them up and celebrate them because they are magic. That's the best opening statement I've ever heard. um, Let me me first say um, thank you for that. Incredible. Um, My my dear friend, Reverend Otis Moss III from Trinity Church in Chicago, just came out with a new book called Dancing in the Darkness. And in the book, he says that everybody does in the black church community what they do in the Jewish community about Heschel. They say, where's the next king? We need the next king. And Otis says, we don't need the next king. We need the next thousand kings. And they don't need to be kings. They need to be all different in their own ways. Everybody's stepping into the fight, each of them unique and different, bringing their own gifts in their own ways. And I think that's what you're coming to here. Um, I uh, thank you for that that incredible Torah that you started with. Um, Last year, I learned... A sforno, an interpretation okay. um, that, of the plagues, which we read actually in Parshat Vayera this week. And I wasn't intending to speak about this, but, but actually Sforno writes that the intention of the plagues was not to punish the people of Egypt, but to get them to try to make tshuva, to change. Because ultimately the, the intention, God's hope was not that Israel would win and Egypt would lose, but that we could all be liberated. And, um, and, and Abraham Joshua Heschel wrote, you know, so, you know where's the next Heschel, wrote, um, you know, s- some, some years ago, like the great tragedy of the Exodus was that the, the Egyptians could have been liberated too, but they chose not to. And as you're speaking, I'm thinking about this anti-woke law and AP African-American history is now illegal in Florida because who's harmed by people learning African-American history, right? And, and so... Um, I, it, I think it's so important. Actually, I, I, I would love for you, you talk about both sides. During, we're not going to go in order here. So folks, every person should get the book, buy it on Audible and also in hard copy. And so you can listen to it and then go back and read it and highlight. Um, but but we're not going to go in order, but I wanna, I'm just going to pull out some themes that I was really just so compelled by that I can't stop thinking about. One is both sides journalism, and you talk about, you know, the kind of pressure on the on, on journalists to 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 show that we're, you know that that you're going to um, that you're not taking sides and you're going to be fair arbiters, but that ends up putting people on a particular side of the argument. And I there's a there was an article that Rebecca Solnit actually wrote um, maybe a, a year or two ago that I want to just lift up here, and I'm going to ask you for your thoughts about this, and you can share what what the challenges were for you as a journalist in this space. But she wrote. The truth is not some compromise halfway between the truth and the lie, the fact and the delusion, the scientists and the propagandists. And the ethical is not halfway between the white supremacists and the human rights activists, the rapists and the feminists, the synagogue massacrists and the Jews, the xenophobes and the immigrants, the delusional transphobes and the trans people. Who the hell wants unity with Nazis until and unless they stop being Nazis? So, yeah, that's, she's fire. <laughs> so, <laughs> and even still, the dominant form of journalism today, as a layperson who just partakes in journalism by, re- you know, reading and, and watching, seems to be an attempt to try to, like, we're all just in this conversation and there's truth everywhere. And I just, I wonder if you could just help us understand what is the danger of both sides' journalism I think you just said it. I think the danger is, uh, you know, the, the quip you've all probably heard is that if somebody tells you, 
you know, it's raining purple, your job isn't to say, some people say it's raining purple and other people say it's raining white, your job is to open the window and look at the color of the rain and report. Like, we have to have some skin in this game. And I think that, you know, there's a longstanding tradition that, you know, journalists were all too liberal and all the papers were too liberal and the New York Times is too liberal. And so the corrective for that was to counter-program it. And that way you'd sort of get, mm. you know, something that was meant to be that sort of, you know, the, 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 the sine wave in the middle that was truth. And I think that, you know, to me, the most emblematic sign of the problem was how many years it took for mainstream journalism to use the word lying yes. when Donald yes. Trump lied, right? And they, I mean, there were so many caveats and hedges and, you know, people are saying, and it's interesting, right? Because it was mirroring what he was doing, right? Mm -hmm. He would say, I don't know if this is true or not, but people are saying this. And then we as journalists were performing He's saying this, you know, I'm not, I'm not passing judgment, I'm just reporting. And so I think by the time, I, I almost want to say it was 2019 before headlines would actually say in the headline, you know, misleadingly says, you know, distorts things. It took such a long time before we stopped sort of taking stenography and mm. being like, well, you know, he's amusing, he's good for traffic, and that's what, you know, eventually puts braces on my kid's teeth. Um, and so I think there was this impulse to both just write, you know, whatever we thought uh, uh, would sell. And as you say, um, pitting, you know, uh, uh, one side that was fundamentally at least trying to tell the truth mm -hmm. against one side that was quite aggressively distorting it. And I, I found myself, uh, I, I won't name the TV show, but I stopped going on one of the Sunday morning shows because they kept putting me against somebody who was an activist who was paid dark money from, you know, Leonard Leo's troughs. And I would say, but, but actually that person isn't bound by any journalistic right. code of truth. And so to put me against that person, and I actually have to tell the truth and they're just saying stuff, um, isn't both sides. And so I, I, I'm deeply worried and, and um, you know, we can talk about the Kavanaugh hearing or not, but I was very, very deeply personally upset by the way that even the journalists who were in the room mm. did this kind of dispassionate two-step, right? Mm. Where they're just like, I'm just going to report what's happening. Mm -hmm. And in the room, what was happening was, you know, a 12-car pileup on the freeway. Ooh, that was an L.A. joke. But it was, like, unbelievable how bad it was in the room. And the women, by the way, the journalists who were covering it when then Judge Kavanaugh was screaming and mm -hmm. spitting and pounding on his um, yellow pad. And the women's, you know, shoulders were rucked up around their ears because it was actually quite scary. Yes. And then we all went and typed our story. Right, right. I remember in the book you say that your son, you know, texts you or calls you and says, are you safe in that room with that man? Right, like he he under as as a child understands the danger there. Not that you're not that in that moment you're physically in danger, but being in a room with a man with that kind of rage, and the and the yes, I I think that's uh, that's so it's so powerful. And so you, well, you saw it. You were right there as it happened. I mean, we witnessed it. Um, I think there was such an eruption when that uh, when those hearings happened. Um, I mean, clearly, I think it. I think it changed many of us. I, I remember it was Parshat Bereshit that um, as, as the hearings were unfolding, and I saw something I never saw in the Torah that, um, that Shabbos, which is that the two creation stories in Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two talk about two fundamentally different realities. Some of you were there that Shabbos. I was talking about how in chapter one, there's this, there's this androgynous being that's both male and female and perfectly equal and both created in God's image. And then chapter two is one is Eve that's really subservient to Adam, that's created out of Adam in order to serve Adam. And that I, I, I thought that 
that day, that, that week, as I was experiencing the trauma, the, the second, secondary or vicarious trauma that many of us were experiencing, I thought, you know, part of the reason that this is such an eruption for so many of us and so traumatizing is because we live in a mentality of Genesis chapter one. We want to believe that, I mean, we, we strive to build partnerships and friendships and relationships that are actually built on really true equality and respect and love, both of us created in God's image. But our systems are still rooted in Genesis 2. Our systems are built in Kavanaugh's reality, not our reality. And for the first time, I realized the world, God gave us two choices. You can live like this or you can live like this. We chose, cha we chose chapter 1, but the world chose chapter 2. So when in your heart you believe that it's possible for, for all human beings to be in God's image, but you live in a world that that's grounded in systems that are fundamentally exploitative, that are fundamentally hierarchical, then, then a moment like this happens and you break, right? Because you, you just realize that you're, you're clashing with your reality in a way that just breaks the myth of your existence. So, so first off, what you just did is so beautiful because you actually pointed up that Ginsburg teaching I started with by saying that's Genesis 1, right? That's the first, that's yeah. the first creation yes. story. We're all lifted up, which is very cool. Um, you know, I think one of the things that I realized, um, you know, and, 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 and this is a theme also throughout the book, is that I came up through law school thinking the law was pretty awesome. And you know, not perfect, arc of the moral universe, bending toward justice. We are getting there. And I really believe that. And I think that the book, in a sense, is a series of kind of detonations of mm -hmm. that certainty. And not just for me. I think every one of the women that I profile has some version of that moment when they say, oh my God, this system is working exactly as it was designed to work, yes. which is to make sure that white men, you know, will always have a thumb on the scale and other entities are always, always going to have to push and fight and probably lose. That's the electoral college. That's the way the Senate was built. That's mm -hmm. the filibuster, right? The whole system is built to do just this. And so when we say things like, oh, you know, the end of Roe was the demise of abortion rights in the United States, if you were a black woman in Texas, mm -hmm. you never had Roe. The mm -hmm. day the Hyde Amendment passed, you didn't have a right to abortion under Roe. And so I think a lot of the magical thinking, even for folks who were shattered when Dobbs came down, came from this notion that things were a lot better than they were mm -hmm. and a lot more fair and just than they were. And now I think, and this is in some sense where for me the hope of the book lies, is that only in having those blinkers come off mm -hmm. can you say, ah, okay, so this is what the Electoral College does. This will ensure for all time that minority, majority presidents, presidents who lose the popular vote, will be able to seat three justices, which will be ratified by a Senate that represents as many people in this state as do in Wyoming, right? Millions and millions fewer people represented by the minority majority Senate. And they will seat Supreme Court justices who will then do what? Bless gerrymandering, bless vote suppression, do all the things that will make sure that minority rule goes on and on, right? This is a system working as designed. Mm -hmm. And I think we all thought, I sure did, if you just get out and vote every couple of years, we're good. You know, that mm -hmm. all of the stuff we were seeing was the death rattle of mm -hmm. something that was not enduring. Okay, it's pretty enduring. And not only is it enduring, but actually it's working within structures that are designed to make sure it wins. And so for me, I think it's no accident that the last three chapters of this book are about voting. And I really, like, th there was a part of me that said, Dahlia, really? You're going to write about gerrymandering and one person, one vote? And people are going to be like, oh, please, this is not interesting. But it's so important because the arc that you are tracing 
and the arc the book had to trace is that you can win lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit and lose democracy. Yes. And you're going to lose democracy because of a court that's broken, of, you know, a, a, an electoral college that's broken, this independent state legislature act that is going to make it impossible for state supreme courts to rule on state uh, legislative uh, efforts to, to change election rules. All of that stuff doesn't get fixed just by lawsuits. It gets fixed because every single one of us, all the Ruth Baby Ginsburgs, work every day on structural democracy reform. Mm. And so I think what you're asking, I love the question, because those are Brashit too. They're all mm -hmm. structures of power and mm -hmm. oppression. But I think that you have to see that there is a line between the two and choose to be in the first story. Mm -hmm. And here's the good news. This book would have been really depressing to try to sell if the midterms didn't go the way the midterms went. If the midterms had gone with the whole narrative the pollsters were giving us, which is like, women were pretty upset about Dobbs for 12 minutes there, but mm. they got over it and they decided that the price of gas is what they're going to vote on. Mm. And if you were in the Zooms that I was in all summer, these women, these gladiators in Michigan who got a ballot initiative onto the, 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 the state ballot, they needed 200,000 signatures. They got like, I don't know how many, I, I mean, it was crazy. They were crazy. And if you talk to them, when you may recall, right before the ballot initiative went uh, uh, onto the, was printed on the ballot, um, that one of the, the state elections officials said, oh, we can't put this abortion measure on the ballot because the spacing is wrong. Mm. You remember they tried to knock it off the ballot and God bless uh, the, the, the uh, attorney general of Michigan was like, you know where else the spacing was wrong? The Bill of Rights, you know, didn't have perfect Oxford commas and spacing, like please. And those women who fought and fought and fought and fought to get that on the ballot, all six states, where abortion is on the ballot, direct democracy, no gerrymandering, win. This is the work. And mm -hmm. it's so tedious. It's not sexy. There's no like dun -dun, law and order theme. But it is the work that we have to do. Mm. Yes, amen. Yes. You know, um, you know what my favorite line of the book is. And um, it's not, I'm not the only one for whom this is, this is the line that, um, that, I, that I'm stuck with when I leave the book. Um, but there's this moment that you describe that Anita Hill is in a classroom and she's, uh, and she's giving a lecture um, and some, some male student in the class, you know, basically raises his hand and says, you know, Professor Hill, it's not like the sky is falling. And Professor Hill responds saying, we don't live under the same sky, right? Like we just live in fundamentally different realities. And I think part of what's becoming clear through the, the Trump administration since 2016 um, is that we really do live under different skies. And even I remember in the beginning of COVID, everybody was saying, well, at least we're all in the same boat. And somebody very thoughtfully corrected, like, we're all in the same storm, but we're in very different boats, right? And that's why when we had, you know, I, I would meet with my pastor friends on Zooms in the beginning of COVID and, you know, and, and we would talk about how many funerals we were doing every week in our communities. And the numbers were off the charts in many of the, in, in many of the black church communities that my friends pastor to because they're all of their congregants still had to go to work because they were the frontline workers who were putting the groceries on the shelves and who were driving the trucks and and you know whereas in 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 many of the um, in many of the communities that had more resources people struggled working at home but at least were able to shift toward working at home in many cases um, we don't live under the same sky right. I, I think you speak so powerfully in the book about the relationship between vulnerable communities and the law. And even still, um, you talk about how some of the people from some of those most vulnerable communities at the end of the day cast their lot with the law. 
as flawed as it is, as broken as it is, they recognize that this is our path, that we have to continue to pursue justice, even in an unjust system. Can you talk about that a little bit? I, I mean, this is, it's Anita Hill night, but I, I, my, one of my favorite lines in the book is Anita Hill, who, if any human being had the right to just give up on due process in the law, mm -hmm. it might be Anita Hill, for whom the entire system failed her from start to finish. And yet she's the person who most tightly lashes herself to the idea of justice and the rule of law, knowable, immutable legal truths. And what she said to me in the interview, and it kind of rocked my world, much as the we, we live under different skies line rocked yours, is she said, we don't have another choice. Without law, it's chaos. Without law, it's just force and power. And you know who loses? Vulnerable communities. Mm. And one of the paradoxes I noticed in interviewing, because every single one of the subjects of the book comes down in a slightly different place on this question of how much am I going to pour my hopes and dreams into this fundamentally flawed system, is that the paradox is that some of the people who are most passionate about the idea that there's no plan B, right? There's no plan B. If, if the rule of law ends tomorrow, I say this often depressingly, uh, you know, if constitutional democracy ends, plan B is the army. And mm -hmm. that's what we are seeing around the world mm -hmm. right now. And so when I interviewed all these women and asked them sort of iterations of how can you possibly work within a system that really is skewed against you from the get-go, Ironically, it was the women of color. It was Vanita Gupta. It was Anita Hill. Um, uh, uh, it was Nina Perales who said, this system can be perfected. We don't have the luxury of starting mm -hmm. some new system. Mm -hmm. And ironically, it was you know young, brash Becca Heller, who is by far the youngest uh, uh, subject of the book, who just straight up, I know I'm in a holy place, but I'm going to say, who just straight up said, look, Dahlia, the law is bullshit. It's just, you know, I'm going to use the master's tools to take apart the master's house. I have no magical thinking. I've invested no sentiment into this great justice system. But as long as I can use the tools and get a couple of licks in, mm -hmm. I've had a good day. Mm -hmm. And so it was very much one of the, the surprises to me of the book that some of the people who were most invested were the people who had the least reason to be. Mm -hmm. And maybe that just, you know, the book lands on Stacey Abrams, who's organizing mm -hmm. in Georgia. And not only, right, thank you, because Stacey Abrams gave us uh, uh, Georgia. Yeah. But I think that it really goes to this same principle that Stacey Abrams, who has no reason to believe the law is going to show up for her. It has never shown up for her. And yet what she does, and this is the genius of her project, is goes into communities where people have absolutely no reason to vote because voting has never, ever, for one day in their lives, made a material difference, and she convinces them. And then not only does she convince them, but she gets them to evangelize. And they build networks, and they build systems, and all of those Ruth Baby Ginsburgs that she works with have changed the world in Georgia. And that's a years-long project. That's not a day. But it is exactly that act of saying, if we all collectively hold our breaths and believe that this justice thing that is never, ever operated but it might, mm. that's the work. It's so powerful in the uh, Stacey Abrams chapter when you talk about um, when you talk about black folks in Georgia waiting online for eight hours to cast a vote when there will be no material change in their life based on who they vote for, and they know it, but they're trying to transform a system. So I, I want to I shift gears for a moment, and in a few minutes we'll, we'll take a couple of uh, questions before we close. Um, I remember hearing an interesting critique um, a couple of years ago that after these um, massive gun violence events, the, the TV news always tells the same story, which is the incredible resilience of the small town that got hit. We never thought it would happen here, but look at all these heroes. Look at the way people are coming forward. And the critique was, we have to stop telling this story. Right? We have to stop telling the story about the resiliency of the small town that overcame the massacre because that feels good and we should not feel good after an act of mass violence. 
We, it, it numbs us in a way because, and it turns us away from the outrage that we should be experiencing because we're like, oh, it's so beautiful how they all came together. It's not a beautiful story. It's a horror show. And if we, if we don't think of it as a horror show, we don't act on it. Okay, so I want to bring you to a similar shift of a different magnitude that brings us back again to Anita Hill. By the way, every night is Anita Hill night as far as I'm concerned. So I'm happy to stick with her. Um, I, you write something so interesting and counterintuitive, but once you say it, it's so right, about sympathy not being a win. And I want to ask if you'll share with us about when President Biden called Professor Anita Hill to apologize to her and what that actually meant and why it's probably not what many of us thought that it was uh, in your analysis. I mean, I think that there's a, a very um, depressing line in the book where I say that, you know, Anita Hill and Christine Blasey Ford and so many of these victims that we sort of lift up and celebrate, um, they get feelings and men get process. Men get law, women get feelings. And that seems to be the way we divvy it up. And this was an example of, you know, President Biden, then Senator Biden, you know, really, really um, did not run the Judiciary Committee in a way that was by any, any metric fair to Anita Hill. And we know that now. I think that's just empirically true. Um, and uh, he called her to apologize at the beginning of, of uh, his campaign because a lot of women were having trouble um, supporting him in light of that. And, and, and she, I think, really balked at the idea that what she wanted was his sympathy. <laughs> I mean, I think she essentially says, I, I want the system to be fair. It does me no good for you to say I'm sorry and then not change the system. And by the way, Anita Hill quite literally wrote the playbook after her own confirmation debacle so that what happened to Christine Blasey Ford would not happen to Christine Blasey Ford, up to and including a New York Times article where she said, dear Judiciary Committee, don't do this again. These are the things you can do to make sure that what happened to me does not happen. None of those things were put into place. And what did we do? We turned around and said, oh, that Dr. Ford was very credible. Mm -hmm. I felt bad for her. Mm -hmm. she she really suffered something, what did Susan Collins say? Something terrible happened to her. I really mm -hmm. feel for her. That's not process. That's mm -hmm. not law. Mm -hmm. It's not even empathy, right? That's, I mean, it's, it is this idea, and maybe it goes to, to your, 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 your second Genesis story, that what women want is to be like snuggled and cuddled and petted on the head and told that, you know, we feel bad for them. No, we're going to keep having inequality until the law is as robust in its respect for and regard for women as it is in their respect for and regard for men. And so I completely, um, you know, heard what Professor Hill, she wasn't mad at Biden. Mm -hmm. She's so above that, you know, plane. She just wants us to learn so that it doesn't happen to the person after Christine Blasey Ford. Mm -hmm. And actually to be told, and this was my, I write in the book, um, I actually never covered the Supreme Court from inside the building again after that. I just... <laughs> stopped going in. I lied and said I had a cold for like two years and it became clear that I was not going back in there. But one of the things that killed me was the ways in which even, you know, Orrin, uh, not, not Orrin Hatch, uh, Chuck Grassley, even uh, Donald Trump said, oh, she was so believable. Mm -hmm. She was, mm -hmm. I really, my heart went out to her. And then we stepped over her as though mm -hmm. she didn't exist. And that's not, not only is it not a process, it is antithetical to justice mm. to think if we just feel bad for someone, we don't do them the honor, the kavod of giving them mm. an actual meaningful just outcome. Mm -hmm. That's right. And, and then of course, you know, Kavanaugh gets a lifetime appointment and, uh, and you wrote, you know, people just want Christine Blasey Ford to disappear because now we, Kavanaugh, as you said, is the swing vote on the court. And so what we need to do now is not demonize Kavanaugh, but try to like pull him away from the radicalism of his, um, of his compatriots on the court. 
Um, I, I, I want, I, I'm sure that there are folks who have, um, a, who have some questions here, so we'll be able to take a couple of them. I want to, um, there's so, there's so, I said to Dahlia when we were chatting this week, like, I want to talk for five hours. Can we, I just want to keep talking and talking with you, but mostly listening and hearing you talk. Um, but one of the things that I, um, that I, I, maybe, maybe we can just, I'll bring us to here and then, and folks, if you have a question, let me see you so that I can, I can, um, know to come to you in a moment. Um, you talk, you speak very personally and very, um, it's very raw what you write about your own personal experience um, in the system. And I'm so grateful to you for going there. And I'm sure it was very difficult to make yourself in some way also the subject of the book. Um, and I, I deeply appreciate that. So I first just want to say thank you. Um, it, it's, it's very meaningful. And I know that for every person who stands up and speaks out um, about uh, being a victim or a survivor, um, of harassment or, or, or abuse, it, it gives, it, it paves the way for many, many more people um, to find validation and to find our, our voices and to feel that we, can, we too can step forward. Um, and I, I, I recently, I shared with you that um, I recently um, was speaking with a friend um, who was in a work environment with a predator and found out that there were actually, there were actually many victims um, of this predator. And she fully believed that the, the women, the sisters, were going to link arms and step forward, and they were going to step into the light together, and, it, and that would be the end of this uh, terrible chapter. And not one of them could do it. And she didn't judge them for it. It just broke her heart, because she realized we have this fantasy that like the world has changed, and in so many ways, we're so, we're so far from it still. Um, I thank you for bringing yourself into the book in this way. And I thank you for bringing your family in because you talk about your son or sons and, um, and I, I'm so struck by the world that, you, that you're building for them to inherit, the world that you want them to inherit. And so I know that you, step, you stepped away from the SCOTUS press, you, you know, junket as the, like, what were you, number 17? <laughs> the, um, and, and, and that, that was not an act of giving up. That was an act of rerouting, I think, to give you the chance to continue to do the good work, but not in a place where you felt like you really could no longer be. Um, and I just wonder if you can paint for us, because as I, when I said when I introduced you that you, I feel like you're smiling when you're telling the stories, and it's not just because you have a great sense of humor, but it's because I think it, which you do, but I think you have a fundamentally hopeful outlook and I, um, I can feel it in the, in the way that you, there's a trajectory um, to every one of the stories that you tell. And I think that it comes through the most when you're talking about your kids. And um, because I imagine that for you, like for so many of us, the work that we do is precisely because we believe that the world can be better than it is. And we want our kids to inherit a better world than, than we inherited. And so I, I would love if you could share with us on a, on a hopeful note um, where the strength comes from for you now, given everything that you've seen and experienced? I, I mean, I think that's a, first of all, it's funny that the Amicus um, fans will probably clock that I have been, you know, on a sort of downhill, like it used to be a pretty funny show and it's been pretty grim, I think for the last couple of years. And um, my serious, there you go. My, my producer says, um, you're not Eeyore, you're Broken Tigger. And Broken Tigger is so much sadder than Eeyore. So that's like, right? Thanks, Sarah. Um, but but um, this book is incredibly hopeful. And I think surprised a lot of people from like this guy who's been feeling pretty glum. Um, but I think for me, you know, and you kind of pulled, pulled the, the moment in the book um, that I could not get through reading the book on tape without crying, and I tried seven or eight times, and I think you can probably catch it if you listen, is the moment where Kobe, my older son, just looks up and says um, completely generously, um, you know, and I was freaking out about something I was writing, and he said, I know you don't like to write about you, but sometimes you have to write about you so that other people can tell their stories. That's how this works. 
And it was in some ways like the wisest. And he was about 14. He was the most self-absorbed, narcissistic, <laughs> mirror-gazing teenage boy. You know? <laughs> and, but then he said this like <laughs> mystifyingly elegant thing. And for me, it's that. It's that I think our kids are amazing. And I think that, again, I think if, if the election hadn't proven to us that these Gen Zs are terrifyingly effective, they're good voters, they're smart, they don't join clubs, they're not answering, you know, when the pollsters call, they're not answering their non-existent landlines. Yeah. Um, yeah. They are so much better than us. And they really are more capacious, more generous. Mm -hmm. I look at these kids and I just think, and my kids, you know, peep out in the book, but like so many of the women I interviewed, including Anita Hill, including Vanita Gupta, including Robbie Kaplan, just say, these kids are a juggernaut yeah. for justice. And at some, time, at some point, you can suppress the vote, you can gerrymander, you can do whatever you want to do. Mm. And these kids are going to rise up and they are going to change everything. And so that's what gives me hope. Yeah. All right. Do we have a burning question or is that a note to end on? Um, okay. I think I, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna make the call. I, th I feel like we should end there because it's so uh, that's just it's so powerful. It's so right, and um, you know there's a there is a, a, a halacha that I love, um, which I mean I love many halachot. <laughs> there is one there's one law that I love, which is say it, when we bring out the Sefer Torah tomorrow morning and we're reading, and if there's a smudge or um, a problem with one of the letters. Um, you're not supposed to read from a Sefer Torah that's no longer kosher if the letter's been blotted out. Um, but the grown-up readers know what it's supposed to say, and so we might not be the best gauge of whether or not it's still legible. And the halacha says, so what do you do? You call a child forward, and a child will tell you if it's pasul or if it's kasher, if it is kosher or not kosher. I just translated kasher as kosher. <laughs> if it, the child will tell you if it's right or if it's wrong, and um, so I'm. I'm just gonna. I'm gonna take your uh, your son's plural wisdom, um, and I think that I think that the children are telling us that something in our society is terribly wrong, and that there is a path forward. They're they are hopeful. They're not giving up, and I think uh, if we follow their lead, we will do very very well. Um, please, if you haven't yet, uh, this is an excellent read, and uh, I'm so grateful to you, Dahlia. You always have a home here. I hope you'll come back whenever you're on the West Coast, and uh, we're so deeply grateful. Thank you. Shabbat yes. shalom. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Very funny.